Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, we are joined by author and Naval Academy professor Craig Simons, the great expert on the war in the Pacific in the 1940s. Remember, we'll take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to this week's sponsor, Song Finch, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, um, we got a couple new things to talk about this week. We'll stay off of the Biden and uh, the Democrats and the crazy Republican right in many ways. But the, the new claim of the Trump fellow travelers is that a discrediting of the Steele dossier proves that the Trump-Russian probe was a hoax. Wrong on virtually every count. The dossier, uh, as you know, compiled by a former British intelligence agency agent, was paid for uh, in the main by the Clinton campaign, you know, oppo research, uh, and it charged Russia was interfering with American elections to help Trump, and it had some salacious details. Some of the specifics have been thoroughly debunked, and at least, as has at least one of his sources. But the overarching theme was right. Russians did interfere. But moreover, the Steele dossier played no role, let me say no role, in the Mueller report or the then Marco Rubio-led bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report, both of which found extensive contacts between Moscow and the Trump campaign in 2016. Mueller specifically said he didn't clear Trump. He just didn't have enough to charge him with the legal definition of collusion. He didn't charge him with obstruction of justice because in an earlier Justice Department, edict said a sitting president can't be indicted. You know, I would suggest any, any of our listeners who are confused by some of this propaganda they're putting out there, read Charlie Savage's excellent piece in yesterday's New York Times that goes through all that, or even a column last weekend in The Hill by your host. The only hoax, James, is that the Russian-Trump connection was a hoax. Yeah, it's, but, but you expect him to say that. Why are respected media outlets yeah. engaged in this kind of crap? There was nothing wrong with the Steele dossier. It was a piece of opposition research, of which people do all the time. It wasn't submitted as an affidavit, a sworn testimony in, in a legal case. It wasn't used to prompt the investigation. But yet there's just need that I really don't understand for certain people to like publicly beat themselves up in the hope that they'll get a shred of approval from the Trump crazies. And I, I don't get this. This is a perverse desire they have. It's something, it's really weird. They need to get some deep psychiatrist to look into what motivates these people. But they certainly love to self-humiliate themselves in front of Trump people. That's all I can say. And I'll let somebody with a deeper understanding of human psychology and human need explain it to me because I sure can't understand it. Yeah, and the key point is that the Steele dossier was oppo research. It was raw, re uh, it, all was, it was raw intelligence. Uh, there was apparently a source who was deeply flawed, and there was some stuff that was wrong. Okay, fine, but it didn't. It, it wasn't. It wasn't at the core of the investigation. It wasn't uh, involved actually at all in either Mueller or the Senate Intelligence Committee. James, what they found out. I'm talking about Mueller and the Senate Committee. Paul Manafort, the campaign manager. 
exchanged polling and campaign strategy when he met with a Russian intelligence agent. Now, I've heard some people say, well, that Russian had access to public polling. You know far better than anybody that campaigns have private internal uh, uh, polling data, uh, the internals and strategy sessions that could be very useful to someone who wants to help them, as Kathleen Hall Jamison said the Russian social media trolls did. They met in New York with Donald Trump Jr., a bunch of Russians connected to Moscow who were going to give him dirt on Hillary Clinton. And uh, Michael Flynn, the NSC advisor, had a number of dubious contacts. And Roger Stone, our favorite, was the one who forecast that the Russian-connected uh, WikiLeaks would, at a perfectly opportune moment, put out stuff about John Podesta's hacked emails. So come on. Uh, you, you know, you're right. They need something. There may have been a couple mistakes made. There always is. There were a few mistakes made in Watergate. But the stories and the report and the evidence is overwhelming. Who can, what difference does it make if, it, if there were mistakes made? Yeah. It wasn't a public document. Right. It wasn't part of anything official. It was a piece of campaign research of which you can use or, or, or not use, and it stands up the way it is. I don't even understand it. And, and we got to say, well, it was, who gives a shit whether it was right or wrong? All right? It wasn't the basis for anything right. legal. And, and of course, the the the, the Poland, the Russians had expert help on where to target and who to go after. That is contained deep in the bowels of the the banner points, of which I would call them, but we'll call them, you know, tabs or or, or you know yep. internals. Right. I, it, it doesn't matter. I just I've always called them banner points, but that, that's very useful to have when you're really trying to put a, a disinformation operation, as the Russians were doing, of which there's no doubt about that. And I, I, I just think that the coverage of this has been is just insane, and, and I, I don't even understand it. Well, I agree. I think the Washington Post was correct in uh, uh, deleting uh, some sections and revising uh, of two stories they did because there was one source that uh, has been indicted and now is at least questionable. Washington Post did hundreds of stories on this, hundreds, hundreds. And the idea that they have backtracked or uh, somehow uh, you know, taken back what they wrote is nonsense. They didn't. They haven't. They won't. Uh, but... You know, it's a it's a it's a good talking point for the uh, for the Trump fellow travelers. Yeah, there's something there's something weird going on here about certain people in the media's need for approval from Trump people. But I, I, I'm not going any further than that. But let me just say it's it's a weird desire. Um, switching subjects, James. It's um, it's no more uplifting, I'm afraid. But a month ago, at your daughter's wedding, we really thought that by far the worst of the pandemic was behind us and a return to normalcy was just about here. I think that's less clear today with the Omicron variant, uh, which is started in South Africa. It's spreading. It almost certainly is somewhere in the United States now. Scientists fear it may be more contagious. Uh, and our, you know, a couple points. Our political and social fabric will not tolerate any more lockdowns, whatever the justification. 
But that doesn't mean that you can't do things. Social distancing and mask indoors is important as ever. And most important, get vaccinated. You still could get the virus, but chances are that it'll be are less that you'll get it. And certainly it'll be less serious and less likely to require hospitalization. Uh, and due mainly to the cold weather, there are, there's been a surge in, in places like Michigan. But three quarters of those who were infected, James, were not vaccinated. Get vaccinated or you're threatening us. And I guess finally, I would, the only, I don't know if it's a criticism, the only challenge or criticism I make of the Biden administration, they have to do a better job of getting testing uh, uh, more available. We had uh, a personal issue uh, with somebody we knew who worried about it. And it was really hard, it was last weekend, to, to, get, a, to get a quick test. We, we have to have a crash program to make sure everybody can get a test. Well, first of all, there's not a single person that listens to this podcast that's not vaccinated. I mean, that just isn't. I mean, we don't have anybody that fucking stupid that's going to take this much time out of this schedule to watch us. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I read everything. I, you know, I go to all the trusted news sources that I think are right. And I'm as anxious as anybody to find out as much as I can about this. Unfortunately, there's not a lot we know now. Uh it's concerning because you're right at the beginning of the month, it was overwhelming feeling that we were get, starting to get this thing in the rearview mirror. It, the rearview mirror is now hazy. I hope, hopefully it comes into focus in a better way, but we don't know that. And we don't know its effect, its economic effects as it, as it pushes forward. But there's no way this is good news. Yeah, I think Biden actually um, said it well the other day. It's we should take this seriously, but we shouldn't panic that there are a lot of things we're doing. Uh, first of all, we have a president who's handling it much better than we did in March of 2020. Which, by the way, uh, uh, James, I have one real regret. Remember Ronnie Jackson? Yeah. Yeah, Trump's, Trump's, Trump's doctor. Uh, we, never, we never did know uh, what, 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 what really happened to Trump. He's a member of Congress now. He's a doctor. And he said the other day the Omicron uh, variant he thinks is just a Democratic ruse to try to help in the 2022 election. Let me tell you my regret. My regret is that Ronnie Jackson did not go to an Ivy League school. Because if Ronnie Jackson had gone to an Ivy League school, he'd be a surefire candidate for our Ivy League sphincter Hall of Fame. Which, by the way, listeners, in the next two weeks, I promise we're going to have the final inductees. Uh, so please send in any suggestions. But, uh, you know, it's just it, it, it's an embarrassment to have someone well, like that. Well, it, it, it is. Somehow, that guy was a physician. I think it was Obama. They liked him in Obama White House. I think Obama, President Obama made an admiral. Right? Yeah, I, 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 something happened to that guy. He just drove off a cliff. When you're around but, Trump, that happens, James. But again, it, 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 it's infectious. It did, some, it, it did something because he was actually, by all accounts, was a popular guy in the Obama White House. And was affable, personable, professional, and he turns out to just be this insane drunk. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to, to know the real story behind Ronnie Jackson. It's There's a good story. We don't know. Yep. Yeah, you're right. It's a good story. Right. If he but... just was started out like Marjorie Taylor Greene, just was nuts yeah. out of the forever, I wouldn't be interested at all. But this, what happened to this guy? And, and he, he just didn't go. Nuts, he went, like, insanely nuts, like Michael Flynn nuts. 
If anybody out there has any information on Ronnie Jackson going nuts, insanely nuts, uh, please send it in to us. Some good journalist wants to do a story, and what the hell ever happened to Ronnie Jackson? Yeah, yeah. Hey, since it's the holidays, I have a great gift to share with you. It's called Songfinch, and it's the perfect thing to give this holiday season. With Songfinch, you can create a personalized radio-quality song full of details about your life, your relationship, or special memories with a person you love. Just send Songfinch the details, pick your genre, and a professional artist will create a song that will be treasured forever. They have over 700 professional Songfinch musicians who have been seen on shows like The Voice and Songland to choose from. And their team can help you find the perfect match. Only takes three to seven days until it gets delivered directly to your email. I got one uh, earlier for my wife, Judy, who I love. And I'll tell you something. When I get in her doghouse, which I sometimes do, it really helps to throw back and play this song. Let me show you what I mean. Remember Carter playing ball at the Georgia field. All I know is that day I found something real. I wouldn't be the man I am today if you never had looked my way. So, James, you know, what do you think? Maybe you ought to get one for Mary. Well, I, I, anybody doesn't do this. I was, I was going through, I was packing. I have to go to uh, New York tomorrow. I look at my neckties. And I, I, people have given me neckties of, you know, 77 years old. Neckties and socks through the years. And I even remember who gave them to me. All right? If you want to give someone a gift and you want them to remember how fondly you think of them, then give them this. They're never going to forget it. The pair of socks is going to go in the sock drawer. The necktie is going to go on the tie rack. To never be remembered again, right? If you give a, a, if somebody a bottle of wine, which I'm open to and I like wine, you're going to drink it and forget about it. You, this song is going to stick in your head. It's going to be personal. It's going to be about you. And it's going to make a statement about how the gift star thinks about the giftee. I think I got that right. Yeah, but you did. The, the person that received the gift will understand yeah, how, much, how, how much that. So I, I, this is a, if you want to be remembered for your Christmas holiday gift, so you want somebody to know how much you think of them, then give them this. That, that, it'll impress them. They'll forget the sock. They'll forget the, the necktie. They'll forget the bottle of wine. They'll forget the, the can of popcorn or anything else. Yep. With over 5,000. Five-star reviews. Everyone is raving about Songfinch and how much they love it. So tell someone how much they mean to you with Songfinch. Now, songs are $200, but with the code WARROOM, you get 20 bucks off your own custom song this week only. That's just $179 for a gift they will treasure forever. But hurry, you have to use code WARROOM for $20 off this week only. Visit songfinch.com. That's S-O-N-G-F-I-N-C-H dot com and use code WARROOM for $20 off your very own custom song or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, our guest, the first three-time guest we have ever had, I believe, is the great Naval Academy historian Craig Simons, 
the expert on the war in the Pacific. Craig is taking time out from working on his biography of Admiral Nimitz, which is due out next May or June. Uh, but we're so pleased to have you, Craig. He also, as I, I told you earlier, is the greatest tour guide of the Naval Academy you can possibly imagine. Craig, uh, next week will be the 80th anniversary of the surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the day that still lives in infamy. Now, the United States, you have, uh, have, have written, anticipated a Japanese attack, but they didn't expect it to be at Pearl Harbor. Why such a huge seeming intelligence failure? Well, I think it might be fair instead to say that it's less an intelligence failure than a remarkable logistical accomplishment by the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, we, The United States had broken, and by broken I mean uh, been able to read parts of the Japanese diplomatic code. So they knew something was afoot. They knew that their ambassador in Washington had been told that he had to get a settlement by November 29th, or after that it was going to be too late because certain things were going to happen. Uh, So they knew something was afoot. They knew that there was a Japanese invasion force headed down through the Taiwan Straits. War was imminent. The United States had sent out a war warning, in fact, to Pearl Harbor, as well as every other American installation in the Pacific, War was coming. They knew that. They could not imagine that the Japanese could get a major strike force all the way across the North Pacific to Oahu without being seen to do it logistically, refueling at sea in bad weather in December in order to launch this attack. The surprise was not that war was coming. The surprise was that it was at Pearl Harbor. And uh, Japanese Admiral Yamamoto was deeply skeptical, again, you know, relying on, on, on your, your magnificent accounts, of war with America. He thought it just, you know, you, you can't have a, long, uh, a long-term war with America. So I guess what he thought, this was his, I, for lack of a better term, his Hail Mary attempt. Cripple the American fleet, uh, and then maybe we have a shot for a prolonged war. Yeah, I think that's a fair analogy. You know, one of the things that's necessary to understand is the dramatic... I was going to say antipathy, but that's wrong. I'm going to say antagonism between the Japanese army and the Japanese navy. The Japanese army was determined to go to war. A Japanese army general had become prime minister, uh, Tojo Hidekai, and uh, the army was absolutely determined that war was essential to get them out of this horrible quagmire in China. Well, Yamamoto said, well, you're nuts because war with the United States is insane. But if you're going to do it anyway, if there's no way out of this, if you have decided the only chance you've got is to cripple the American Pacific battle fleet so that it'll be out of action long enough to allow you to gobble up those resources in the South Pacific, Borneo, Sumatra, Java, Indonesia, what is now Indonesia, as well as uh, Malaya, uh, before the United States can react. Uh, if you do that, you have a chance, but it's the only chance you've got. Well, Craig, uh, tell us why, as you as you note, that this was a really significant tactical victory for Yamamoto and the Japanese, but it was a reckless strategic failure. Well, the tactically part is pretty self-evident. I mean, they did sink four yep. U.S. battleships, crippled three others. They also sank a target ship, the Utah, which and, and very few losses, very few Japanese losses. 
Japanese losses were minimal, especially yeah. in the, the, first of all, the Japanese launched two airstrikes uh, at the American ships in Pearl Harbor. The first one by 183 airplanes came about 7.30 or so in the morning, and another one a half hour later by another 170 airplanes. Um, the first strike lost only three airplanes in that entire attack, which is remarkable. The second one, they lost 24. The Americans are awake now. They're paying attention. They're shooting back. Uh, but of course, their ground aircraft had been pretty much destroyed. So all they could do was shoot uh, anti-air fire from ground. And that's less effective than being attacked by airplanes in the air. So Japanese losses are minimal. 29 airplanes total and no ships. You know, they had anticipated that in a Hail Mary, which you called it rightly, I think, like this, they would lose probably two carriers. They didn't lose anything. And why was it a reckless strategic failure then? Well, they I, lost the war. The but. Japanese, everybody makes assumptions when they make a, a decision to go to war. And this one assumption the Japanese made was that the Americans would be shocked by this. Fair enough, they were. Uh, so shocked, in fact, that they would be taken aback and begin to look for ways out of this that the Americans would appreciate. It's too hard to fight this war. It will take too long. It's too expensive. Can't we talk about this? They would come to a settlement and agree to let Japan keep its conquests in the South Pacific. Well, that's a clearly a misreading of the American character. And both sides are guilty of this, by the way. One of the reasons the Japanese were successful here tactically is the Americans assumed in a kind of comic book stereotype that the Japanese were little tiny short people with buck teeth and bad eyesight who, who couldn't possibly bring this kind of thing off. And the Japanese assumed that Americans were all fat, lazy, movie-going, car-driving. Well, maybe they weren't too far off. But in any case, <laughs> not capable of fighting back to the extent of, of hanging in there to fight a long, difficult war. So those misunderstandings on both sides are what contributed to the war. James. So uh, here we are 80 years later. All right. It, and this also turned out to be a huge political event in terms of the typical blame game. So we come out to shoot and we blame Admiral Kimball and General Short. And then we said, well, maybe that wasn't as much. And maybe Washington knew something and the intercepted codes. I understand that they now they're better able to read the Japanese intercepts today than they were in December of or late November, early December of 1941. And you've always had this strain of Roosevelt encouraged that he did it because he knew he really wanted to get in the war. It was a grand, you've heard all of this shit. Yeah. What is, where is the best history right now on who knew what about what in Pearl Harbor? And if any, in, who, who is primarily to blame for us getting caught with our pants down, if you will? Okay, I, I'm going to say John Prados is probably the best guy uh, whose research has has really broken down the code question and what we knew and what we didn't know. So, 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 I don't mean to interrupt you. Tell, tell us who John Prados is, because not everybody Say it again? Say it, tell us who John Prados is. Well, he's, he's another historian of okay, the Pacific sorry, War, okay. and he's written a couple of books. So I'm right. sorry, I can't come up with the names right. off the top of okay. my head. But if you type him into the search engine, you'll get it. 
Um, but here's the thing a lot of Americans for, don't understand. Let me begin by saying that you're right. A lot of people say, well, there must be more to this than meets the eye. How did the Japanese bring this off? Why were we so unprepared and so on? We were unprepared because we were nearly 4,000 miles away from danger and, and simply did not believe the Japanese capable of pulling this thing off. We did think that they might strike the Philippines. And if you want to find a culprit here, I'm going to deflect you just enough to say maybe there's one in the person of Douglas MacArthur, who got 12 hours advance notice after the attack on Pearl Harbor that war had been declared and still hadn't reacted. That's another story we can investigate later. But keep in mind, there are two kinds of codes here. One's a diplomatic code. And yes, the Americans were reading portions of the diplomatic code. That's how we knew. They were thinking about breaking off diplomatic relations. But that's how we knew war was coming probably this week. You know, the headline on the Hilo Hawaii newspaper of December 4th said, Japan will strike this weekend. This is in Hawaii. This is the headline in two-inch high letters. So the fact that war was coming is no mystery to anyone. We had not, however, broken the Japanese operational code, the one they used to give orders to their ships and their fleets at sea. So nobody knew anything about what the Japanese Navy was doing at the time. So had we broken some codes? Diplomatic codes, yes operational codes, no. Now, within a couple of months, we would have done that. We did do that because we knew in order to fight this war, we had to go uh, full, full blast in trying to break down that operational code, and eventually we did. I'm not sure that's fully responsive, James. Go ahead. So, Admiral, let me see. You don't buy that there's a conspiracy here, that somebody withheld information that they knew to provoke this attack or to provoke the United States in the war, you, you would admit there was like a series of what they'd call it the Navy, the Marine Corps, a series of fuck-ups, but not there, there was no grand master behind this. Is, is, would that be your view? All right. Let, let me take this back to square one, which is right. did FDR, did President Roosevelt uh, want to do whatever was necessary to make sure Britain was successful against Germany and Europe? That's a yes. That's why he committed the Navy in the North Atlantic to going way beyond what was appropriate uh, for a neutral nation to escort convoys, confront German U-boats, and all of that business. I think in the back of his mind, he may have hoped even, expected perhaps, that the Germans would declare war on the United States because of the way the United States was behaving in such an unneutral way in the North Atlantic. So thus far, okay, I'll buy that. The argument that he hoped the Japanese would attack the American battle fleet in the Pacific so that he could declare war on Hitler in the Atlantic, that is bogus. That is not true. Roosevelt was a Navy man. He never would have put the battle fleet out there as, as low-hanging fruit for the Japanese to attack. He did not know in any way that they were targeting uh, Hawaii or the battle fleet in Pearl Harbor. He did know, and everybody else knew, that the Japanese were likely to strike the first week of December 1941 at Malaya, Borneo, Sumatra, Java, maybe even the Philippines but not Hawaii. So it is simply not true that he knew something that the operational commanders, such as Kimmel and Short, did not know. 
That is absolutely untrue. Okay, so we're, we're, we're 1,900 hours Hawaii time, December 7th. And the Navy thinks that they've been decimated. The Japanese think they have a great victory. Then as we get further away from December 7th, we keep hearing, well, they didn't get the fuel dumps. Well, they didn't get any aircraft carriers. Well, maybe it's so... How much did elite intelligence or military people on both sides, as you got further away from December 7th, Tell us about how we started rethinking what happened there. Okay. First of all, the fuel dump and the aircraft carriers. Let's deal with that. All right. When Washington sent out its war warning on November 27th, now that's still almost two weeks ahead of the attack on Pearl Harbor, but they send out this war warning Thanksgiving Day, December 27th, and telling them that war may begin imminently. Be prepared for war. It's coming. They told Pearl Harbor. They told Philippines. They told Wake Island. They told Midway. They told everybody. War's coming. Um, where? We don't know. But be prepared for that. Now, in response to that, Admiral Kimmel in Pearl Harbor says, well, I got to take care of my outlying defensive positions. Midway. Wake Island. So he takes the two carriers that he has in Pearl Harbor and sends them out to deliver fighter planes to Midway and to Wake Island. That's why they aren't there. The Yorktown had already been ordered to the Atlantic to deal with that battle that's ongoing with German U-boats in the North Atlantic, that undeclared naval war taking place there. So when the Japanese hit on December 7th, even though carriers are their primary target, there's no carriers there. That's not a conspiracy. That's directly attributable to the idea of protecting those outlying positions by reinforcing them with fighter planes. Fuel dump. Here's the other question. It would have been far more strategically effective for the Japanese to blow up those fuel reserves in Hawaii. Hawaii didn't have any fuel on its own. It all had to be brought by tankers from California, 2,400 miles away. So getting rid of the oil would have crippled the American fleet at least as much as sinking the ships. But there's two things wrong with that. Wrong with two reasons why they didn't do that. One, Admiral Nagumo's orders from Yamamoto were to cripple the American fleet to make them incapable of interfering with the Japanese movement to the south for six months. Knock them out for six months. If you can sink four battleships and two carriers, they won't be able to interfere with what we want to do down there in the South Pacific. That's all I'm looking for. So even though he launched, Nagumo launched two strikes, in that second strike, instead of picking out secondary targets like the fuel dump, he concentrated on finishing off whatever ships were still afloat because his objective was not to make a strategic success in crippling the fleet indefinitely. It was to knock them off balance for six months so that the Japanese could conquer the resource base in the South Pacific. Those were his orders, and that's what he did. So, so let's go to... The, the, there was a th two strikes. There was a third in the planet that they called off. All right. Yeah, what there is was. The, was that the Google that called really, it off? Well, no, there really wasn't a third okay. strike plan. There was okay. a third strike option. And it came right. when the pilots came back from that second strike, they reported, man, we hit them hard. We've wiped out their aircraft on the airfields. 
Uh, we've sunk most of their ships. We control the air. We could go back now, and at our leisure, we could finish these things off. But Nagumo, the admiral in charge of this, had all along thought this was a really long shot. So he thought it was a risk to do it at all, and it was really a risk to loiter around for another day, launch another strike, a third strike, maybe even a fourth strike, not knowing where the American carriers were. He had already pressed his luck as far as he was concerned, as far as it would go. He said, nope, we're not going to do it. We're going back. There was not a third strike planned. There was always a third strike option if needed. But given the reports of the pilots, it wasn't needed. So I'm going to give you back to Al real quick. But just I think Fashida was the name of the, the lead pilot on Pearl Harbor, one of them. It, it looks like his reports to Nagumo were overly optimistic. That, but they came back, the news they came back what was a lot better than it actually was on the ground. Is that is that a fair observation? Yeah. Um, first of all, the, there is a problem with Mitsuo Fushida's uh, account, which was written soon after the war. He was in charge of the strike group. He had appendicitis at Midway and missed that. But he ended yeah. up writing a memoir after the war. Um, in which he tried to emphasize how close the Japanese had come to winning this thing. And there are two historians, John Parshall and Anthony Tully, who wrote a book called Shattered Sword, in which they just picked his account apart. Apparently, a lot of what he had to say was wishful thinking. Oh, we almost got it. Oh, we almost won. And what Parshall and Tully have pretty much demonstrated is not really. Okay, Albert. Okay. Come, well, let me that. let me go back to to Douglas MacArthur, uh, the American Caesar. Uh, how did he escape blame back then? I mean, not only was he twelve hours delayed, uh, Craig, but you're right. Uh, at one point, they wouldn't even wake him up. Uh, I mean, and yet, yeah. you know, he 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 really did escape blame. Well, there's a phrase that came out back during the. I guess it was the 2009. Uh, financial crisis, James will know more about this than I do, where there was a talk about institutions being too big to fail. Right, right. We heard that a lot. Douglas MacArthur was an American institution who was too big to fail. You could not have told the American people in 19, early 1942, you know what, this hero, Douglas MacArthur, uh, who's the highest ranking military officer on the planet, he screwed up. So they didn't do that. Instead, they gave him the Medal of Honor and made him a hero. He, frankly, was not. And I think a good case can be made that his culpability was at least as great and arguably greater than that of husband Kimmel at Pearl Harbor. And it's curious what happened to him. MacArthur was a kind of man who kept a coterie of close advisors around him. Uh, kind of palace guard, if you would. Later on, they would come to be called the Baton Gang. Uh, and foremost among them was a guy named Sutherland, who was his chief of staff. And Sutherland was his gatekeeper. And so when people came to MacArthur's headquarters on December 8th, this is west of the international dateline, so it's December 8th in Manila, and told him what was going on, Sutherland told him the general cannot be disturbed. Now, why not? We don't know. Was he asleep? Was he panicked? Was he, we just don't know. Sutherland simply wouldn't let people go see him. 
So what we're left to conclude was that uh, what I'm left to conclude, and this is just my view, that MacArthur uh, was a kind of in a state of shock. Uh, he didn't expect this. He didn't think the Japanese had it in him. He didn't think anything would happen until the spring. He had predicted that the Japanese might strike in the spring, but not now. Uh, and, and he was simply uh, flummoxed as to what to do about it. Uh, he turned down the appeal of his air commander to launch strikes against Formosa and then changed his mind and gave him the go-ahead. And the upshot of that was that the American airplanes were still on the runway 12 hours after the first bombs fell at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese struck at Clark Field in the Philippines and destroyed MacArthur's Air Force on the ground, which was shocking. Uh, so why did he escape? I think the answer is because American morale at home simply could not sustain uh, undercutting Douglas MacArthur at that time. We needed a hero, and he was it. Right. You, you know, we mentioned in passing uh, that the carriers uh, weren't there, that they were, had been sent off, and one was, one was in the North Atlantic. Uh, you, you've written so compellingly that battleships were not the key to the war in the, in the Pacific. It was the carriers. So that was really a big deal that the carriers weren't there, wasn't it, uh, Craig? It was a huge deal, and Yamamoto knew it. You know, Yamamoto was one of the few Japanese admirals who recognized that the age of the battleship was going away. As early as 1934, he was lecturing the Japanese war college students that uh, battleships are more like the art that your grandmother has in her living room. You know, they look pretty, they impress visitors, but they're really not good for anything. Well, this was a shocking thing to say, uh, but he's ahead of his time in terms of that recognition. So he impressed upon Nagumo that your primary target is those carriers. And the fact that they weren't there was a great disappointment to him. Now, the Japanese played up the attack on Pearl Harbor as a great tactical success. James was asking about why was it a tactical success? Because it was the perception was still there that the battleships mattered, although hindsight allows us to appreciate as I think Yamamoto did at the time, that the age of the battleship was leaving just as the age of the carrier was arriving. And Craig, on, on December the 8th, 1941, I suspect, just tell me if I'm right, and no one in Tokyo, and probably a lot of people in Washington didn't believe it would be possible for, uh, for the American force to be ready six months later uh, to score that decisive victory in Midway. That was really a remarkable achievement in such a short period of time. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. The Battle of Midway is one of those naval battles in history that's transformative. It's a pivot point for history itself, not just naval history, but world history. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. I think the expectation was that the Japanese uh, would run rampant for six months. That's what Yamamoto himself said when the army, the Japanese army, told him, we're going to war, is the Navy ready? He said, for six months, I will run rampant. After that, it's going to be a different story. Well, here's the end of that six-month period. And Yamamoto knew he had to take out those American carriers or his rampage in the Pacific would come to an end. The whole Battle of Midway was focused on getting the carriers that he had missed, that Nagumo had missed, on December 7th, 1941. The object of the Battle of Midway is not Midway, not that tiny little two-island atoll in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, useful but not critical. The target, the object, 
is the destruction of American carriers. The idea is to attack this, this little atoll. The Americans would send out their carriers, and the Japanese would pounce on them and sink them. And, of course, that didn't happen because the Americans learned that they were coming. James. So, Craig, like, like every student, like every nightmare, I'm one of your students, and I watch movies, and I get these ideas. And I'm, I'm a particular fan of the Henry Fonda, Glenn Ford Midway movie. I didn't, I didn't like the Charlton Helson backstory. But I saw this in a movie, and I've read it sometimes. The way that the Japanese command structure operated, at least in that movie and other reports I've read, they would, like, question Yamamoto. What do you mean? We're going to risk our whole fleet. And if you look at at least the movie, Nimitz was unquestioned. He said, he told Admiral Fletcher, race points is going. He said, well, he can't fly. He's not going to start. You're going to leave this time. He's going to leave this time. Everybody saluted and went. You would have thought that just given the difference between Japanese coach and American coach, we would have a more questioning command structure. And is that kind of accurate in the movie that they would just like really go after each other in these meetings? And I was yeah, more that's secret? Hollywood. It, that, that's I, okay. I, I'm a big fan of Henry Fonda too, but right, I, actually right. the newer Midway movie is more historically accurate. Okay. I wouldn't have thought uh, Woody Harrelson would be an effective Chester Nimitz, but he's quite he's convincing good. in the role. Right. And in fact, you're right. The culture of the two societies was such that there's more questioning on the American side. Nimitz's boss, Admiral Ernest J. King in Washington, is skeptical of this whole thing. He doesn't think the codebreakers have got it figured out. What if they're wrong? What if it's some place else. Most people know the story of how the Americans sent off this bogus report that the water condensers on Midway had broken and the Japanese intercepted it and report that AF was short of water and knowing that AF was going to be the target of the next attack that gave them the smoking gun. That was only necessary because Washington was questioning the decisions that Nimitz was making. So there was some argument back and forth. And then, of course, it's complicated further by the fact that Bull Halsey had come down with the skin disease, probably shingles, we don't know for sure, but was unable to participate in the Battle of Midway. And Nimitz had to put a, a battleship cruiser guy in charge of carriers. And, and Fletcher, who King did not trust particularly as his boss. So it was, it was complicated and, and there was a lot of discussion on the American side. I think there was less discussion on the Japanese side. Yamamoto told Nagumo, this is what you'll do. This is when you'll do it. And this is how you'll do it. And then Yamamoto himself put to sea something Nimitz did not do put to sea in the super battleship Yamato, following up the carriers because his idea was that he would use the battleships to pick off the cripples after the carriers had done their job. Well, of course, that didn't work out at all. <clears throat> but I think that idea that the Japanese were arguing about it and were confused and the Americans were all, we're ready to go, we know what we're doing, that is a complete flip Good. of the actual circumstances. I, I, I like the second one, too. I, I, I just love Glenn Ford as Spurance. I, if you told yeah. me. That, but yeah. Was, Who under, doesn't? Yeah. He just, Spurance is just such an underappreciated guy, you know. That and, is true, too. And so I'm going to give it back to Al. But for, for the first 21 years of my life, I thought that MacArthur, Eisenhower, and Nimitz were the great equals, you know, the, the great trinity. And MacArthur wasn't a pimple on Eisenhower and Nimitz, I mean, in terms of 
It's just, it drives me crazy. You said that, I did. I know, I know. Go ahead, Albert. Well, I would, I would just, I would just add one of my favorite moments when I was with a group praising MacArthur, a bunch of Republicans, and they asked Colonel John Glenn what he thought of MacArthur, and and that that great Marine said, "I'm glad Truman fired his ass." So uh, (laughs) that's my favorite MacArthur story. Craig, before we let you go, tell us you have a book coming out, uh, as we said, next spring on Admiral Nimitz. Just just give us a little capsule of, uh, of, of Chester Nimitz. Yeah, well, first of all, this is not a full biography. I don't begin with his birth and go all right. the way through to the end. There's a little bit of a prologue and, of course, a bit in the, in the epilogue so that you know what happens to him subsequently. But this is a focus on his command in the Pacific. It's called Nimitz at War, um, Command Leadership from Pearl Harbor to Tokyo Bay. And it really begins with his arrival at Pearl Harbor and it ends with his signing of the Japanese surrender on board the Missouri in Tokyo Bay. So it's just that three and a half years. So it's a pretty tight focus on his decision-making, on his relationships with his subordinates, and for that matter, with his superiors, including Ernie King, who's a tough guy to work for. And what you see emerging here is a leadership template that I think is really appropriate for our time uh, and and too often missing. James mentioned the three heroes that he had in World War II, Eisenhower, MacArthur, and Nimitz, and I said he's two-thirds right, that the Eisenhower-Nimitz template of being uh, patient, tolerant, listening, cooperative, as compared to, for example, the Bull Halsey George Patton template of get out of my way, here I go, uh, you need those guys. You want them on your side. But boy, if you want uh, strategic decisions made, I think you want the Eisenhower-Nimitz team in charge. Well, we've just decided, James, uh, that uh, Craig Simons is going to be our first four-time guest uh, when, yeah, the, uh, when the Admiral Nimitz book comes <laughs> Of course comes he is. Of we can talk to you all day, all day, Craig. So uh, just thank you so much and the happiest of holidays to you. you Happy holidays to both of you and you everyone else luck. as well. Thank you. Thank you, you Craig. You bet. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. All right, James. Now, these very good questions from our very smart listeners, which we try to provide them with almost as good answers. Start off with Craig in Salt Lake City, Michigan. uh, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Craig is from Lake City, Michigan. I haven't been there. I I guess it's up north. The Republicans are more successful, Craig notes, at defining Democrats by using the extremes and fringes from the left. The Democrats are defining Republicans by their extremists. Can you help me understand why? Boy, that really perplexes me too, Craig. Also, why does the Biden administration continually trot Biden out to podiums all by himself? Wouldn't it help to share the load with some younger cabinet members standing beside him? Two Two pretty good questions, James. I think both of them are, are, are right on point, to, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, he, he makes a really good point. I go to the second one. I, I don't know why we, we don't have more cabinet members out doing more things and more visible. We've got some great communicators in this cabinet, and many of them are very effective, have run for statewide office, have run for state one at, at the statewide level, and don't give them a secret, put them out there. And they had the, the CEO of Walmart 
you know, gave an interview about what a great job that President Biden is doing helping out on the supply chain. Well, they should have had him at the White House and, and other, you know, the Target CEO or, or the Costco CEO or anybody that has re- uh, really affected by these supply chain issues, which apparently they're doing a pretty good job on, and no one knows it. Yeah. No, no. no one knows it. And, and I, you know, this is the greatest story never told. This economic recovery is not good. It's not great. It's awesome. It's breathtaking. And, and we're not getting the story out fast enough. And hopefully I think they're going to get better. Hopefully they will. But they got to start using every tool in their toolkit. They sure do. And, and Craig, on your first question, um, I, I just find it inexplicable. I don't know why the Democrats are tired by a smaller <clears throat> and uh, certainly uh, less uh, dangerous uh, fringe group than the Republicans are. But, uh, you know, we'll, yeah, that, we'll continue that, after that. Yeah, that what I say is that you can say what you want about the squad. Or I don't know why I pick on them. About the, the extreme cultural left, all right? They're, I think they're at some level kind of silly people, but well-meaning people. I mean, they, I, I don't think they have anywhere understand what's going on in the country. I think they're kind of clueless. They all talk to each other. That's the worst thing I can say about them, right? Paul Gosar and Lauren Boebert. You ever look up Warren Boebert's rap sheet? Do, you, do yourself that time. Read a story in the New York Post by a journalist named Jonathan Levine about Lauren Bobit and her husband. And you will be very, very interested to see how they met in a bowling alley and the circumstances behind that historic meeting. Let me just leave it at that. Okay, New York Post, Jonathan Levine. York, John Levine, I think it was in January... Of this year. Lauren Boebert. Okay. Uh, yes. By the and, way, and, Craig Craig also says, thank you, guys, and I love my magic spoon. Okay, all Craig. Right. Terrific. All right. Our second question is from Charles in Christchurch, New Zealand, down oh, under. He says, the Republicans appear to be going through a period of madness. The core of it must be a deep-seated fear of losing their grip on the American political landscape, and the demographics of America are changing, and they're slowly but surely realizing they're being left behind. Do you agree? Yes, I agree, Charles. And that's why, guess what? They want to cheat. They want to suppress the vote. They want to change the rules. They want to make it so they can't lose. They want to do what Georgia has done. They want to do what Texas has done. They want to do what Wisconsin and Michigan want to do. That's exactly, you You nailed it, Charles. Yeah, first of all, I want to go to New Zealand. I, I think I want to go to Wellington and you know, sit and eat raw oysters with Peter Jackson, who I think is probably the most talented filmmaker in the world right now, in the world for a long time. But, uh, yes. Uh, and, and you know who understands this? Republicans in power. So the way that they deal with it, they're going to try to prevent as many people as they can from voting because they know if everybody, as Trump has already said, if you let everybody vote, we can't win. Right. But he said himself, it, this is, we're not trying to figure out something very difficult, but as soon as this COVID crap is behind us, I'm getting my ass down to New Zealand. I can tell you that. Well, I'd like to see Charles. I'll go to Christchurch uh, while you're in Wellington. Well, he Our next question Wellington. is from Rob. Uh, who who says, as he sits and watches the NFL on Fox, he has trouble with the incongruity of the messages the NFL has been sending out about ending racism and hate. 
yet continuing to do business with a company that fosters so much hate <laughs> and propaganda. Is there a way to connect the sponsors of these broadcasts to the hate emanating from Fox? No. You know, it, it, hypocrisy is just part of the world. And no one will ever say that the NFL is not part of some hypocrisy, but I, no. And, uh, it, you know, they'll say it's a different thing, and it's Fox, General Fox, and I, I, I understand exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. And the only way that that would gain any currency, and I don't think it's going to happen, if the players revolted over it. But, but short of action by the players... It's just not something that people add up to. But yeah. they could, if the players wanted to, they could put a lot of heat on them. I watch a lot fewer games, hardly any, as a matter of fact, now. But no. I, whenever possible, if I see that Fox pregame uh, or halftime with Terry Bradshaw uh, and Howie Long, and uh, who's the great former New York Giant? God, he's good. Um, why am I drawing Phil Sims? No, 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 no. The defensive lineman who's on with Bradshaw and. Uh, and uh, and Howie Long. Uh, anyway, we'll. Right. But but it's a really really good show, and I really I don't think. It. Who? I mean, the NFL, the Dallas Raiders gang, up thirty eight million people. Yeah, I don't think of. Uh, yeah, I don't I, think I, I of still... uh, Laura Ingram and uh, uh, you know some of the others when I watch that. So I, I you know I think right, I, don't know. I, I think I, they I are separate. Yeah. Our next question comes from. John in Chicago says, recently Marjorie Taylor Greene threatened minority speaker McCarthy that if he didn't give in to her cultish demands, he can kiss the majority speaker position goodbye. If the Republicans gain control of the House in 2022, how radical will it become? Really radical, John. Now, they can't get anything done because I'm not sure. I, first of all, I, I, I still suspect that the Democrats will keep the Senate and they'll have the president. But they were going to cause more havoc, more craziness, more totally Joe McCarthy type hearings, charges. Uh, it's It will be a nightmare. And Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Paul Gosar, and we're going to lose Louis Gomart, who's one of the crazies because he's been out crazy and he's going to run for attorney general in Texas. But they got a bunch of replacements. It's going to really be ugly. Yeah. I have the equivalent of a PhD in white trashism. I could do a whole dissertation on Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding you, man. These are people who have less than no class. And that Paul Gosar, you know, every, he's got like five siblings. They all campaign against him. I mean, these are fundamentally just rotten-ass people. Right. I mean, that's what's at the core of them. And, and as I pointed out earlier in the program, I think some of the people on the left of our somewhat naive and impractical, but they're not horrible people. Martin Taylor Green is a bad human being. A deranged human being. Yeah, uh, yeah. Paul Gosar's siblings not only, you know, want him out of office, uh, you know, they really uh, want him uh, checked out, as they say. I mean, he's really, right. uh, he's, 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 he's a sick guy. Judith in Pittsburgh. No, he's bad. He's a bad human being. He is. Judith in Pittsburgh. James says, why doesn't everyone keep hammering on the fact that Trump is raising millions every day, spending it on himself, and now the RNC is paying his legal bills? The scams, the Trump scams. Well, first of all, Pittsburgh is probably one of my three favorite cities. I don't know how to start ranking them, but it's very high. James, I love you, but every... you have more than three favorite cities. I, I, mean, know, okay, I do, but, but <laughs> Pittsburgh is, is just, just high, high, high on, on, on a lot of levels. 
uh, it, it, she's right. The whole thing is a grift. And, and yeah. there's only two kinds of people that, that view Trump. Is he just going to keep this grift right till the end and not run for president and keep making money? Or is he going to follow through with the grift and run for president? And I got to tell you, these stupid-ass people keep sending him money. And, you know, I don't feel sorry for him. I'm sorry. If, if, if You're being fleeced. You know you're being fleeced. You know you're a sucker. And you insist on being a sucker anyway. Go ahead. Yeah. I, 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 there's, there's no hope for you. And as long as, long as he knows it, 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 of course, Howard Stern is right. Trump hates his own people. He likes fleecing them. He thinks they're stupid. And you know what? He might be right. I think yeah. they are. He will come up with a new scam every week. Um, oh, Aaron, everything in, Aaron in Santa Barbara, which is one of my favorite cities, um, James. It's a terrific oh, yeah. place. It really is. Yeah, yeah. We used to stay out there when my wife yeah. was covering Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, maybe we ought to pick presidents on where they vacation. But anyway, Aaron in Santa Barbara says, why are we tied to the same TV news anchors always moderating political debates? Why not mix it up with historians, comedians, business people, artists, even retired politicians? I'm not going to come out against TV news anchors doing that, James, because I'm married to one. But uh, I think the larger point that Aaron raises is right. I would do away with the Presidential Debate Commission. I think they've demonstrated their really not up to that task. And, you know, I'd like to mix it up, and uh, they do that in states. I'd also like to encourage forums where candidates ask each other questions. I really think that's interesting. It tells you two things. It tells you what the candidate who's asking the question is thinking and what the candidate who answers the question is thinking. So, yeah, I'd be for a lot of variety. I, I agree, and I particularly agree on the Presidential Debate Commission. It's run its course. And, and just the kind of way we do... It, it it's not critiquing the people that run it, but they've become more like joint press conferences than actual debates, where you get a chance to respond and they respond, and you got thirty seconds and you got this. And I agree, they should, you know, to some extent, if we had really good candidates, uh, you would just put a microphone and say, "All right, the only rule is, is you know, you get two minutes to open, you get two minutes to open, and right. ask each other questions. Right, have or, a moderator or, to, to refer. Ask, ask yeah. yourself questions if you want to. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, I agree. Let, let the public referee. Hey, James, the final question I just love. It's a nice note from Ellen in Greece. She says, just to say, you two make my week so much better. I look forward to your hilarious and stimulating conversation and interviews oh every week. I am a 73-year-old New Yorker living on a small island, Leros, in the, I think it's pronounced, Dodecanes in Greece. And your podcast give me a broader look at what's going on in the world. Ellen oh. is, says, is dumbfounded by American politics. It seems to be much better with Joe Biden, but the surrounding landscape is sickening and disheartening most days. Thank you for being a beacon of humor and news for me here on this island of 8,000. I'm only one of a handful of Americans living here, and finding like-minded people is always a challenge. Ellen, you have just, you have just soared to the number one favorite among all of our listeners. I, I, I'm going to go over there and marry you. <laughs> it don't count. I can marry it here. I can get married in Greece. Thank you so much, Ellen. That That is such a such a nice thing to hear. And you keep hanging in there. And, boy, I tell you what, I love your country. And 
those Greek islands, some of those gorgeous places on earth. And, yeah, and the, the country has made a remarkable comeback from comeback. The, from they really have the dumps. Uh, you know, seven Damn or eight right. years ago. But uh, Ellen, yeah, you are our favorite. Keep listening and keep writing. Absolutely. Hey, James, you know, the right wing has seized on the critical race theory uh, with, in a number of states, uh, they've banned it in schools, even though, A, it's not taught in public high schools, it's just taught in a few elite uh, law schools, and B, many of those legislators who enacted the bans said, basically, I don't know what the critical race theory is, but you know what, I'm against it. But thanks to Judd Legum, uh, that great uh, uh, investigative reporter extraordinaire, uh, I found out this week that Tennessee offers a good, a good illustration. The critical race theory ban in Tennessee includes any material that cites privilege based on race or sex, that cites discomfort or guilt based on race or sex, and anywhere there's division or resentment of race, sex, religion, creed, uh, or political affiliation or social class. Okay, fine. I mean, it's a stupid piece of legislation, but Williamson County, Tennessee parents said, okay, we have now, under the Tennessee law, we are objecting to two books being taught our children. One is Martin Luther King Jr. and the March on Washington, and the other is an autobiography of Ruby Bridges, the first black child to integrate New Orleans schools. That's what the, that is cancel culture. That's book burning. That's playing the race card, and that's what critical the critical race theory opponents are all about. Well, I, first of all, I, I think Ruby is still living. I, I saw her like a couple of three years yeah. ago, and she is a revered, a, a revered person here in New Orleans. I, I, I don't know how you could teach anywhere close to American history without racism being an uh, integral part of it. I just, I just don't. <laughs> or I don't know how you can look at American history without thinking sexism has been a huge part of American history. I, I, I don't understand what these people want. I, I really don't. They want to Do play the race card and win elections. Well, I, 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 I know that, but it, 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 I'd, lo I'd love to explain to me what their problem with our history is. It, it look, do, do, do I think that it, it, there are exaggerations that, that, that are being made on some quarters of far-left academia? Of course I do. But, I mean, the basic history of this country is the basic history of this country, which is that racism and sexism have been huge, huge tentacles in American culture and American history. There's just no yeah. getting around it. Yep. You know, uh, I, I, my my outrage is, is is not so much an outrage, but an observation, and that's on this Paul Gosa, Lauren Bobbitt, this violent imagery that they come up with uh, against people who are, are, I think, at worst naive but well-meaning, you know, good Americans. It, it is just indicative of something really sick about thirty-five percent of our country. It really is, and that's that's the inability to to see anything beyond what you're being told on some by some talk radio show. And by the way, Tennessee is kind of the same. You know, that's where you had the scopes monkey trial. Every time you turn around, there's some preacher in Tennessee, anti-vaxxer, 
getting COVID and dying. I don't know what's wrong. I have no idea what's wrong with it. And that's a, that's great. I mean, in Williamson County, I think it's like metropolitan Nashville. There's some educated people live there. I mean, I, 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 I don't get it because there's a lot of fine people living in Tennessee, but boy, there's some crazy sons of bitches there. They're really hard. That legislature is one of the crazies. Exactly. Ooh, man. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the link to our sponsor, Songfinch, in the show notes. We really thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.